Welcome back, everybody. A um, couple things I want to say right before introducing our guests here. Um, this stream has been going on now for almost four hours. Um, yesterday, it was almost 14 hours. And uh, I think we got about another nine hours left. Uh, our current guest is going to be uh, joining us for an hour and a half, I think, is about the time, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, one fifteen. I got a bill. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and uh, and then we've got the whole lineup uh, that I'll put up on the screen so people can check that out. Um, but basically, I wanted to welcome everybody to to the stream and say, uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that the stream's going on. It's been going on. That's the context of this conversation. Before I click this record button and actually begin introducing you, Samuel. Um, I kind of wanted to say the things about the stream separate from the context of our con or the, the entirety of our conversation, which will be kind of also published after the fact as its own standalone thing. So now that that's been kind of set, welcome everybody. Welcome to Theory Underground. I'm your host, David McCarricker, and today we are joined by Samuel Loncar. How's it going, Samuel? Good. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you. I see your publications going up on academia.com all of the time. Um, I, 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 I'm really excited to read your dissertation. Uh, I think I found out about your work because of a YouTube video that was getting shared around on social media last year where you were talking about how people have historically misinterpreted Heidegger's uh, uh, most important or at least most well-known work being in time. And so... Um, I think that that's probably should be the, our jumping off point. But first, I want to kind of give you a chance to introduce yourself and what you do both academically and publicly. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Um, well, I'm a I'm a philosopher and a scholar of religion, and my work has largely had to do with the fact that I couldn't end up pulling those two threads apart. Um, so I always thought, even just as a historian of philosophy, I needed to know the history of religion. But I was also interested in questions of religion. So I did my PhD in Yale at Philosophy of Religion. And um, I discovered a lot of important material that's changed my life, the most important of which is that in the ancient world, the modern category of religion didn't exist. And in fact, the closest analog to what we call religion in the modern world was the word philosophy. So in reality, I'm based out of a, an attempt to very self-consciously renew what I think of as the greatest Mediterranean revolution, which was this community of basically what we would think of as poets, scientists, spiritual leaders, teachers, entrepreneurs, and consultants who founded the philosophical school. And Plato is, of course, the most famous because we have his prose writings, but the, the philosophical schools of antiquity were really this very cool combination of something kind of like, Dave, what you're doing, like a real kind of underground university. They also had a kind of consulting dimension. They would bring in experts. So out of that came the history of mathematics, ultimately the scientific revolution, but also the history of religion and Christianity and even atheism. So I began to recognize that in order to interpret the most important works in the history of philosophy, particularly kind of my jam, which is German philosophy from the 19th and 20th centuries, I really needed to understand how philosophy itself was a spiritual tradition. And that led me kind of into my, my academic work. So I focus on the relationship between philosophy, religion, and science. And I do a lot of public philosophy as an editor, an institution builder, and as a, just a teacher. That's amazing. Yeah. And you've, you've kind of, I, I, I think in my memory of, of something I might've seen on your channel, you say something about 
the importance of public philosophy and how you see this as a renaissance of, of what you're talking about, this origins of this. And we just had this guest on, Brian Becker. He's also a professor. Uh, he's really into phenomenology, but he also studies Lacan and other areas of continental philosophy. And um, I told him I really want the two of you to meet someday. Um, but he was saying similar things, and I was kind of saying that I see the work that you do, the work that Todd McGowan does, and the work that Brian Becker does as, like, the most important. Obviously, there's also, like, you know, uh, Gregory Sadler, um, as well as, like, Wes Cecil, and before that, Rick Roderick, the, uh, Hubert Dreyfus, and David Harvey. These are all professors who, for some reason decided to put their stuff onto YouTube and make it so that we can watch and rewatch the lecture course, in the case of someone like Dreyfus or David Harvey, that was developed over the course of a lifetime of reading the same text over and over and over again with other people and being in dialogue academically, publicly, and with graduate students and introductory students. So really speaking to every level from a text. And I take such inspiration from Hubert Dreyfus and uh, from uh, from uh, David Harvey. David Harvey obviously does that with Capital, whereas Dreyfus is doing that with Being in Time. He, he was doing that at UC Berkeley until he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and we've had his one of his prize students, uh, Dr. Ian Thompson, on the channel a couple of times. But the, that's kind of just like the, 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 the historicity of, of this conversation because really Dreyfus is someone who I think you are critiquing in a sort of sense. And it also uh, Johannes uh, Neisenhauser, I think is his name. Uh, he, he's also a Heideggerian. He's critiquing the, the, uh, the Dreyfusinarian uh, uh, interpretation or appropriation of, of Heidegger's work. And so I guess I kind of I'm curious how you see yourself in this milieu. What is your intervention into the field. And then after that, we'll talk a bit more broadly about philosophy as a way of life, as a form of psychotherapy, your your appreciation of the ancients, et cetera, et cetera. But first, let's just talk about Dreyfus and the American scene and, and, and how you see yourself in it. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm glad to acknowledge a debt to Dreyfus and to hear about your own debt. I mean, he is an amazing writer and teacher. I love everything I've read by him. You're right. So I want to be clear. My critique of Dreyfus is kind of just within the narrow world of like academic kind of American Heidegger scholarship, which is, you know, Dreyfus accomplished essentially a miracle, which is he got the broadly analytic world to at least take his reading of Heidegger seriously. And I would compare it to Hegel, right? Basically, the history of German idealism's reception in America is very young. It's about if you go back to Josiah Royce, you can tell a hundred year story, but I'm talking about modern analytic philosophy since it's kind of run the elite universities. It's really two generations. It starts with Strassen's Kant. And right, Strassen's Kant is a Kant without metaphysics. So the first thing you have to do to get any German um, metaphysical thinker into the American tradition is you have to demetaphysicalize them. So that is already a big advantage for Dreyfus because Dreyfus is part of this fascinating kind of existential pragmatism tradition that he kind of creates and develops at Berkeley, you know, with Searle and all these other people, brilliant kind of combination of speech act theory, the best of, you know, the reading of Merleau-Ponty. So I see Dreyfus as a kind of amazing um, continuer of a kind of American phenomenological tradition in a very pragmatic key. And so he reads Heidegger in a way that's 
one, unquestionably interesting and useful conceptually. I would never critique it. I just don't think it has anything to do historically with what Heidegger's book is about. And that's why Dreyfus, like most Heideggerian interpreters, they can't really deal with the rest of the book um, because he's so brilliant. He can get this great reading out of book one and he's able to read this sort of Vorhandenheit and Suhandenheit stuff in this really interesting way. But I don't think that's Heidegger's project is to kind of destroy and refound the metaphysical tradition of the past 2,400 years. And so my interpretation emerged because I'm not a Heideggerian. I don't actually like Heidegger a lot, but I think he's really important. And I discovered an argument when I was working with Design Insight in grad school where I realized, oh my God, the central concept of this book really shouldn't be rendered as being. I don't think the book is being in time. And I realized the book is really existence in time. And that's how I translate it. And then I, I wrote my dissertation about that argument. And part of what was missing was the metaphysical religious background to Heidegger and his text. So my interpretation of Heidegger combines all of the work in Heidegger that's done in the history of religion and theology. And that work is just ignored by philosophers, even though it's philosophical, with the sort of German tradition that I'm part of in German idealism, where my context, like people like Kassira, is I really work on historically contextualizing a thinker in their milieu before I bring my own sort of conceptual program to it. I don't have a problem that people do that, but that's the main way people read these figures in the American Academy, is they basically bring what's respectable in their version of philosophy today, and they right. impose that on the text as the sort of price of that thinker's admission into the community of academic conversation. But for me, that's backwards. These are the thinkers we're still reading 100 years later. We don't or shouldn't assume someone's going to read us in 100 years. So I think we have to put them in context. And when you put Heidegger in context, what is he? He's a devout Roman Catholic kid who for the first 20 years of his life thinks he's going to be a priest. He's trained as a poor Catholic student on scholarships in the name of Thomas Aquinas. The model for the sort of critique of modern philosophy in the post-1870s Vatican I Catholic Church. He's incredibly religious. He's very obsessed with the idea of eternity. He hates modernity. He hates temporality. He's going to be a priest. He studies mathematical logic. He's, so he's in the same tradition that Frege's in. He's in the same tradition Herschel's in, coming from a background really a very rigorous interest in kind of the eternal science of math. And then what happens? how do we get the Heidegger that we know? That's part of the interest in my work. And I think you have to have the whole origin of Heidegger, as he himself famously says in his interview, the Japanese interview, where he says, but my origin always remains destiny. Origin always remains our destiny. In that famous quote. So Heidegger's origin is in the deepest roots of the Christian theological tradition, in the deepest roots of Roman Catholic metaphysics, and in the deepest roots of German philosophy. And I think to recover the real spectacular power of Zion and sight or existence and time, you have to lay bare the mystical, the repressed religious and spiritual dimension of his project. And that's, that's how I see what I'm doing. And I recognize it's very heretical, but I'm already a heretic because I take religion seriously. As a scholar, I think you must take it seriously, right? But if you take it seriously in the mainstream philosophical community, there is just a sort of still kind of frankly ridiculous, but very powerful professional bias against religious subject matter, which I think leaves philosophers impoverished intellectually and culturally, but it exists. So if you, but I figure, look, I'm already all in. So yeah. I just, I bring it to Heidegger. That's sort of how I position myself. If that makes sense. That does, it does, it does make sense. You know, this is, 
Um, are you familiar with uh, what that the book After Virtue? Yes, um, Alistair McIntyre. Right, the first like couple pages of it. Right, uh, how many people actually read the entirety of it? Um, I uh, reading the entirety of it is a goal, and it's because those first few pages. I, I have read like the first five chapters, but those first few pages. Uh, when I was reading them last year, I couldn't think about it in any way but like a Heideggerian way. And those pages are dealing with like this analogy, like imagine you go to a future where uh, he, he basically does a thought experiment where, you know, it's post-apocalyptic. Uh, there's no science, there's no technology, but people start finding artifacts from when the periodic table was being taught in schools, from uh, from other kinds of you know ways of classifying things from the sciences, and then so these get taught as like oh we we're going to teach you these things, but people have uh, no context for the world where those came from, and so people are just regurgitating rote and it's sort of like worshiping these as as like a as like oh this is knowledge right, but nobody has the context for it, and then he basically he's like plot twist that's actually what's going on with virtue that's actually what's going on with all of the conversations in uh he says both phenomenology and analytic philosophy which is kind of like the early division for really analytic and continental and he's saying both sides are making this mistake of not thinking seriously enough about the world that someone like aristotle or plato was writing in the audience the author the world they're not thinking those conditions and so when we're having debates over metaethics or, you know, thinking, oh, let's talk about, you know, virtue ethics from a sort of pragmatist standpoint, what's being lost is that context. And so, like, I'm like, I'm like, it's kind of weird that he he thinks that that applies to phenomenology just as much, because if he's using phenomenology as a catch all for continental philosophy, I don't think that critique would apply to Heidegger, because I think Heidegger's entire project is to understand the context of the, 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 the original experiences that give rise to the concepts that get handed down over time. So first of all, does that make sense? Are you, are you tracking and, and would you agree with that or would you modify it? No, I think it's a kind of a, honestly, I think it's a brilliant, perfect analogy. It's funny because I actually love that book. I've taught it. I've read it three times. I think it's very problematic as a, finally as an argument. But honestly, it's just one of the most, first of all, it's an amazing work of philosophy because it's a great work of literature. Right. right. And and I think, you know, McIntyre is in this kind of wonderful tradition of like Hume of being a pretty even when he was I don't know if you read his early Marxist stuff. McIntyre starts off as a hardcore Marxist. Um, mm. Then he transitions out of Marxism. I don't think he ever really transitions out of Marxism, but he's Marxist in a way. Always, I think, take what's best, which is the kind of Marxist historicism. Um, I think. And he he, be, he becomes interested in kind of Catholic thought. And then Aristotle, but but that opening image you you use—that's exactly, I think, the right framework. Which is, we're in a framework philosophically where I think, and a lot of my work, like I'm teaching a course in Germany this summer on apocalyptic philosophy. I think of my work is very apocalyptic because the McIntyre analogy is exactly right. We don't live in a single world. We live in a world which is a bunch of like ruins competing for who can like claim to be the most put together air of some real reality that we don't remember anymore. And academic philosophers are kind of invested in thinking that they're real philosophers because they have the title and they get paid for it. 
which by Plato's definition, unfortunately, makes them only a sophist. Because if you have to get paid to do philosophy, Plato says that's the definition of a sophist. But there are real philosophers everywhere, including in academic philosophy. And those of them, I think, who get really interested in the question of where we are, they realize the question of when we are is the real question we don't agree on. We don't agree when we are in time and space, and therefore we don't agree what kind of work needs to happen to make ourselves intelligible. But I, I think that since at least Heidegger's era, we've been completely kind of lost in space-time, including in our ability to culturally orient ourselves. And so people like Heidegger are actually the essential conditions to gaining a genuine orientation existentially. I mean, I could talk about the Heidegger part. I think Heidegger isn't actually a historicist, so I don't know how much he helps us historically, but Heidegger does help us in a more, you could say, philosophical, metaphysical level than he does. But Heidegger, I think, was always afraid of real history. Um, I think the Catholic part of him never stopped kind of not liking the idea that we're affected by our cultural conditions. And you can tell he deeply resisted that um, in his own life. Heidegger did not like to see himself as part of his own context of Germany, Catholic Bavaria. So, but yes, I agree that I think that McIntyre is exactly kind of the right image. Even if you don't agree with McIntyre, that scenario I think is true, is we've lost the context that makes our practices intelligible. And therefore all philosophy that's serious has to involve a type of historical therapy where you have to deal with a kind of traumatic repression that's at the heart of the way in which we're currently psychotically rendering reality as if it's normal or as if we don't need some fundamental critique. Okay, that's a lot. And it it raises a lot of questions. It raises a lot of questions. And I guess the one I want to just dive into that's nearest, because I think I'm a filthy atheist from the standpoint of most religious people um, and from the standpoint of most uh, atheists, they would see me as a as someone who sits on a bridge or a, on a bench, right? And I think the, I, my, my philosophical ideal or what I feel like perhaps is my role, at least in this phase of my life, is to be, uh, to, to, to help try to bring fundamental contradictions into the light, to flush them out, to dig in deeper, um, and, and, to, and to, to challenge ourselves with the greatest texts. And that I've been obstructed from being able to do that in a, in a lot of ways because of wage labor, because of, uh, you know, like I, I, I wage labor before college uh, and then throughout college and then after college. So I never had my time and my energy, uh, which is why my thesis project, I use Heidegger and Marx uh, to develop the concept of time energy as an existential uh, a structure of being in the world. Uh, it's, it's prior to the division of time from energy, is from the compartmentalization of these things. So all we have left is energy without time uh, that is repeatable in large blocks of time uh, or time without energy at the end of the day, at the end of the weekend when you're exhausted. And so that's my basic kind of orientation and way of bringing Heidegger and Marx and into, a, into a, 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 not a framework that makes them reconcilable, not a framework that makes them something that can be synthesized because ultimately – it's an imminent critique of both, um, and I uh, draw just as much off of other thinkers uh, at this point. I've been focusing mostly on Lacan and Zizek, and uh, I'm still like uh, I'm a, a, a very torn Levinasian because I feel like, in a sort of way, Levinas ruined my life, and, uh, and I think that it's because I take ideas very seriously, and so taking his worldview to heart actually ruined my life. It made me a floor mat for the other. And wow. that's it, it. It actually did that for 
a good, you know, six years of my life. And so, you know, that my, but that you can never, after after you've been impacted that strongly by a thinker, you don't leave them. You have to still think with them because you're wrestling with them every day. And so that's, I think the situation we're probably both in with Heidegger. Um, but as that's my context in facticity, as far as I think it's relevant to what I'm, I'm about to ask you, which is, um, I think that the, the commonsensical atheist response is just that you're doing Heidegger an injustice because of the, uh, the, the fact that he left the church. He was radically disillusioned with it. And, uh, and I, I've even heard that he thought, you know, actually, where did this Catholicism thing really come from? It's not an authentically German idea. Um, and it wasn't a, a, a very Greek idea. Um, and so like his disillusionment with the church was also a disillusionment with Rome and, and, and the Latinization of Greek philosophy and the import of these ideas into Germany that all, uh, water down and create, you know, uh, orders of removal from these primary human experiences that people ostensibly had before the, kinds of fracturing and classifications and, 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 and modernization projects that come after the Enlightenment. So I guess that's the, that's the sort of devil's advocate in this situation. What do you think about that? Well, I think the common atheists um, would have a hard time explaining what their atheism amounts to. This is, the first of all, a philosophical historical claim. I, I set off my podcast with the first series, which is like a development of my dissertation, by saying I'm a religious atheist. Um, so I, I think maybe I, I'm, very, I'm very sympathetic to what I hear you describing as your own view about kind of basically leaning very much into the reality of imminent contradictions and seeking to understand how they play out. So I, I, I also am very atheistic in many contexts and then appear quite religious or spiritual depending on the valence of other contexts. So this kind of atheistic reading is it's um it's naive. So I think I respect it, but it's basically it's like a, it's like an introductory student complaining about having to watch a show they don't want to watch, which is like your preferences matter for entertainment. That's not the same thing as scholarship. Yeah. Okay, so what we prefer is very different from what is the case to do something properly, right? A person may not prefer to you know have to wear a boring suit if they want to work on Wall Street. I don't want to work on Wall Street. But if you do want to work on Wall Street, you have to wear the clothes. It's just like, you know, when you make $100 million, maybe you can wear a T-shirt and they do, right? But it's funny. A T-shirt's expensive in business. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Just like suits are cheap when you have to wear them. So the economy of our context determines the real symbolic valence of what the goods are that are circulating. And so what's really going on with Heidegger is actually he was the first person to pull off this kind of really brilliant con, which is... You take your religious background, you cannibalize it in a way that's pretty obvious to everyone who has or knows your religious background, but then you pawn it off as your own original secular stuff. Everyone does this now. Sam Harris is nothing without Buddhism, for example. Sam Harris has gone from being a militant atheist who made his brand on atheism to being like every like smart mom's like guru for spiritual meditation he doesn't have to deal with the fact that all of the stuff he uses comes from the traditions that he makes fun of, nor can he explain why atheism didn't produce a multi-thousand-year tradition of wellness that he can benefit from. But he gets to commercially capitalize on East Asian philosophies and religions, bringing guests and speakers because he's the famous Western white patriarch. 
who yeah. can normalize for a secular audience the actual content that comes from a context of gurus, of mantras, of discipline, of obedience, of secrecy, stuff that he doesn't want anything to do with. He can't sell that. No offense, and this is I'm not picking on Samaris. I like him in the sense that as a communicator, I admire his gifts. He's not a philosopher, and if you call him that, then unfortunately you have to say unkind things about him. But yeah. as a communicator, <laughs> he's very gifted. So I think this common atheist has a point because they could say, well, Sam Harris would agree with me about Heidegger. And I would tell them, that's your problem, my friend. You don't want to go to Sam Harris for anything that isn't about like what you could read about Buddhism on Wikipedia or neuroscience from 30 years ago. So, you know, that's his literal expertise. And now his expertise is he's a he's a cultural commentator. Good for him. Right. Um, but you know what? Heidegger is a lot more difficult than that. Heidegger, when he said that my origins always remain future, he was talking in that context about his theological training. So, but Heidegger also makes this radical claim, which is in, it's in one of his lectures that I think unfortunately has never been translated. I have a translation of it in my dissertation, which I should put online uh, because the book isn't going to have all the German anyway. But Heidegger says, my work is so important that you can interpret the entire history of philosophy in terms of it. But in terms of the entire history of philosophy, you cannot place or contextualize my work. That's Heidegger's own claim. Now, I don't think that's true. But the point is, Heidegger isn't positioning himself as one more academic philosopher, right? Heidegger is a German messianist. So this is a huge part of per what you were mentioning about his historical context. You're exactly right. And all of those comments are, are correct. The rejection of Latinity, the rejection of Rome. But this is the worst of Heidegger. This is the most non-individual. This is not Heidegger, Martin Heidegger. This is just, unfortunately, a 19th century sexually repressed South German who is deeply attracted to totalitarian and authoritarian psychology, just like Horkheimer and Adorno analyzed when they wrote the authoritarian personality in exile in the 40s. They're writing about Heidegger. I mean, he's on their mind, Heidegger, Schmidt. Why are the Germans so attracted to authoritarian figures? Because the stereotype is that the German is intellect and not will. And so will, which embodies pure patriarchal force, it's the sort of if you want to put it in a really, I think, not fair way, will by itself, voluntarism is a type of like rape oriented dimension of like human personality, right? It's not the mind that violates or the mind that accomplishes. And so the, I think there's a deep insecurity in the part of intellectuals that German culture, this is not a kind of engage in a set of cultural psychoanalysis, but that I think Horkheimer and Adorno were interested in this. It, there's a kind of cultural tendency in which you really need authority but if your freedom is your freedom of intellect, then you become a kind of radical, almost romantic individualist. So Heidegger's self-image is this hilariously German romantic image of the lone genius who stands outside of time and history. Meanwhile, he's writing metaphysical garble for Hitler, and he's excited about it. So right. Heidegger cannot acknowledge his own human limitations. He can't acknowledge his own personality. He can't acknowledge his own cultural conditioning. And that's the actual problem is what his readers feel that. And I think psychotherapeutically, Heidegger is like a person who basically makes people resist therapy rather than go, if you want to put it really kind of controversial. <laughs> well, that's funny because like uh, we part of uh, the one of the threads at uh, uh, Theory Underground has been the critique of therapism um, and you know, especially especially the Lacanian critique 
of ego psychology and of this. And if uh, I think Christina Hoff Summers puts the in her book One Nation Under Therapy, she says therapism is a pathologization of everyday life, right? And she talks about she and Frank Ferretti, who wrote the book Therapy Culture, they talk about how like this introspective uh, tradition of attributing, you know, f fundamental kinds of alienation and dis disenfranchisement onto uh, your your relationship with yourself and its relationship with your parents. It, it's, a, it's a form of privatizing social situations onto the ego and it puts you into a lifelong subscription service to uh, something that's going to make you hypersensitive instead of anti-fragile, which will make you uh, it, it, instead of helping you overcome your anxieties, it actually increases your anxieties. So this 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 line of uh, the critique of therapism is is a, is something that you can't talk about without people then thinking, oh well, then you're against therapy, and we're not against therapy. We're actually we uh, I, I think I, I, as far as I am aware, everybody uh, who's opened their mouths about these 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 terms on this platform is well aware of the values of therapy and is, and is clear about that. Like I had a conversation with my, my friends, we call ourselves young Jijikians as a tongue in cheek kind of term. It's not tongue in cheek for a couple of them who are like the most Jijikian, but the basic that we have conversations from the Jijikian perspective, uh, talking about various things. And, uh, one of the ones we did was a conversation on Jonah Hill's recent, uh, movie Stutz about Phil Stutz. Did you see that? I haven't seen that yet. No. Okay, so then that's a whole can of worms in a direction we don't need to get into. I only bring this up as a way of tying you into the broader thread of what's been going on here um, so that you can kind of clarify your position. And then because really the part I'm really excited to get into is your conception of psychotherapy and the value of this, because I think we spend too much time being critical and not enough time talking about the actual value here. Um, and so, so it's funny that Lacan, who is a Heideggerian, has this kind of anti-therapeutic uh, approach, um, and that uh, you're you're saying that yeah, Heidegger is almost like don't go to therapy, right? And so, uh, can you expand on this and also kind of get to what you mean by? Uh, can you kind of distinguish what you would see as a harmful form of therapy versus what you would see as a as a good kind of therapy? Yeah, well, that, that is a fair but big question, and I appreciate the context, too. I think from what you've told me, I'm very broadly in agreement with the kind of anti-therapism, um, right? I am i haven't read those books yet, although I know of them, but I, I assume they're interacting with and very aware of the kind of... There was an early generation of that. Philip Reeve famously wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, which is the most devastating critique of therapeutic culture at its birth. He critiques Wilhelm Reich, for example, basically the Eric from... So, so let me start with the historical context, right? So I, cause I am very much indebted as a philosopher to what I would consider the kind of Marxist psychodynamic therapy traditions, but not because I read these thinkers. I find very difficult to get into, to be honest, to get into Lacan, even though I recognize the insight. I listen to Zizek and I think he makes Lacan make sense, but I'm always a little just like suspicious of, of aspects of it. Maybe your own experience maybe speaks to that, but so first of all, the critique of therapism, I agree with. In other words, there are modes of therapy that construct the human subject in a way that completely alienates. And this is how I would put it, because th this is very important to me about therapy critiques. All talk of therapy is normative metaphilosophy. 
unavoidably normative metaphilosophy. And to me, it's extremely important to signal responsibly when we can't avoid being normative. When you're talking about competing descriptions of human nature, you are implicitly engaged in a kind of a normative project, even if you yourself don't want to be asserting anything because you don't know what's going on, right? I'm not saying, for example, I know what human nature is, but I have some ideas and they conflict with other people. So insofar as we've had a therapeutic tradition, which does come out of this bastardization and kind of domesticization of psychoanalysis, that basically is for really rich white kids whose parents don't like what they're doing on the weekends. And so you send your kid to therapy or you go into your midlife crisis and therapy is basically about your personal life, your personal meaning. And if you have any problems, then you should figure out how you can personally change that. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not against a lot of the protocols people are given to help them. I'm not against cognitive behavioral therapy per se, right? But these aren't forms of like deep therapy. They're not forms of therapy that assume concepts like inwardness. Um, so when you get this kind of egocentric psychology, it's true that it's like a kind of capitalist paradise. From the Marxist standpoint, it completely alienates the subject from the way in which a lot of their neuroses are simply structural symptoms in their psyche of a kind of form of class domination by their actual material infrastructure, oh, right? Shit. So it's like maybe you're depressed because of uh, the fact that you have to work right. a shitty job, right? It's like that could be yeah. really depressing, right? So, so I agree totally with that as the therapism. I also think therapy for me is just if it helps you, right? So I'm not like a big, I don't make it complicated. I think there's a ton of like, stuff today that is really trying to help people but i think what we don't have is a kind of how do we think of therapy not as like you said an indefinite subscription model where you become a kind of capitalist subject to the nth degree like the more you run away from capital's domination the more you end up literally becoming like a funder of it you know you just pay for ever more expensive forms of therapy so the first thing I would start with that is that there is a really strong class dimension to therapy that it's worth really flagging up front, especially in a context like this where you're welcoming that. It's like, right, this is the, the hierarchy of therapy is this. Social work is for lower class and problem class people, okay? Therapists are for middle class professionals and analysts, psychoanalysis has historically been for the upper class elite. So if you look at the demography of the consumers of therapy, you also have to correlate it with the modes of therapy are very economically connected. We have a very like kind of just massively idiotic um, leisure class today in the capitalist ruling class. So you, they're not as interested as they used to be in going even to Freudian psychoanalysis. But right. you know, this, this sort of housewife or rich hedge fund guy of 70 years ago when he had a nervous breakdown he might have actually had one of his friends say you should see my analyst and he would have might he might have actually gone to a freudian analyst or a reichian analyst or a jungian analyst right 70 years in you're just going to want to sort of get yourself fixed so those people i think aren't doing therapy they're doing pills okay so, so one of the reasons i think we need therapy is what is therapy an alternate to to me therapy is an alternate to a lifetime dependence on pharmaceuticals if you can avoid it not that right not against drugs but it's like i would rather have people think i could spend one year talking to someone and i might not have to take mind-altering psychotropic drugs that no one quite understands and that can hurt a lot of people if it helps people I, of course i support that right but there is a kind of very unhappy um obvious just economic conspiracy in the most literal sense between pharmaceutical companies and 
the psychiatric community. So I'm I'm right, for right. therapy as opposed to permanent dependence on overly convenient drugs. Um, if therapy helps people and and it can help them even maybe reduce their dosages, I'm part of a movement. It's just like great, right? But I don't believe we should be always in therapy, except in so far as my view of philosophy is, we as humans are are somehow out of joint in a fundamental sense. So therapy to me is not a modality. Like it's not something you go to. That's what we've been talking about. But what I mean by it, which we can transition, you know, this is what I mean by it is we need to be healed. <laughs> so to me, a good human life is a human life that first of all, embraces that need, it doesn't fight it. Um, and that to me is what being pro-therapy for me personally means. It means I'm pro-healing. I'm for any tradition or thinker or person who basically wants to normalize asking for help. Okay. I'm for people who want to affirm that it's okay to be dependent, right? If we get to be dominated by class structure, can't we also acknowledge it's good to have a community, right? I think it's like important that we feel free to say that because this kind of egocentric capitalism you describe in therapism, it makes it seem pathological to need people. It makes it seem pathological, as you said, to have everyday feelings. It's true. A lot of depression is just you're sad. Maybe you need to take something for that, but maybe the sadness is an invitation to what? And then you get into what? An existential theory of emotions, right? What are emotions? I believe emotions are semantically salient dimensions of the human body. So I think any approach to life takes the information the body gives us as a great gift, particularly from a diagnostic standpoint. And, you know, I could connect that with a lot of doctors and traditions, but that's already a lot of, you know, probably too long of an answer. But that's the kind of where I sit vis-a-vis therapism, a kind of really potted history of kind of why I take the critique seriously in terms of the Marxist background. But then personally, for me, therapy is being a lot bigger than just whether you go to a person we currently professionally label as a therapist. It's more an openness towards healing as a great good and a great need of us as a species and as individuals. And that's a wrap, everybody. No, I'm just kidding. I, 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 almost, <laughs> I like the idea of the Lacanian variable length session because like, it's almost like if I just cut it off right there, that's, I would prefer that people sit with that for the next week than listen to the rest of this marathon stream. But uh, no, that was, a, that was really good. Now, um, I want you to clarify, you said emotionally, emotions are semantically salient, what? I think the semantically, semantically salient communications of the human body. Okay, communication. In other words, like I, I have a view which I call uh, spiritual physicalism, which is, this is the kind of, it's a philosophical joke. It's like a position which is a joke, right? The dominant position in the philosophy of mind amongst analytic philosophers is physicalism, or the idea that the mind can't ultimately be anything other than somehow the physical human body. Let's ignore the fact that no one can define the word physical. Let's ignore the fact that no one can define the word material, right? That's how dogmatic our modern metaphysics is. It's the most dogmatic metaphysics. So anyway, I like to say as a good kind of, you know, Feuerbachian, okay, let's say we are just bodies. Du bist, was du ist. You are what you eat, right? If we're just bodies, everything we experience, including all of our emotional and psychological states must be something physical. Okay, so here's like, here's an application of this as a kind of scientific hypothesis. Okay, we know based on a lot of work, like Antonio Damasio, for example, very influential on me and a lot of people, right? Scientists of the emotions. We know that emotions are a form of intelligence. 
right? So what kind of intelligence are they? Well, they're information carrying, obviously. And what do they tell us? They tell us about literally things that we can't just think and know. It's kind of amazing. So if you ask a person, okay, in terms of knowledge in the world, what's one set of information no one else can give you? One answer is knowledge about your own body and its states, right? I can look at your body as a doctor, maybe learn a lot. But if I want to know about my body, I literally have just the one context where I have kind of not privileged access, but I have a privileged source. It's me. So then if I say, well, why do I have emotions? And again, let's be rigorous spiritual physicalists. Well, let's assume we evolved them because we're evolutionary psychologists. There's no other reason. There's no teleology. Everything is adaptive function. Well, then you have a very rigorous meaning. Apparently, it's super important for my survival that I have these emotions. Well, okay, this is just based on the most minimalist modern science then. Okay, we know our emotions must be essential for our survival or we wouldn't have them. We know that they're physical, which means we know there's states of the body. So it means if we're having a lot of unpleasant emotions, we have to ask the question, what based on our science and this minimal hypothesis are we being told? And it clearly, for example, let's say I feel numb, which, right, I'm a, one of many people who has a somewhat kind of, uh, you know, I was a harmed, I have, I have a background of harm in my childhood, including physical harm as a young person, which I didn't understand. Um, but that kind of thing can make a lot of people numb, where you think you're always okay because you actually have a very limited bandwidth of emotional experience, right? You're never really happy. You're, so I, I wasn't like a manic depressive. I was kind of just always depressed, but I thought it was like reality, you know? Right. Um, and so when I did experience peak emotional states, like when I would irrationally, but suddenly get very angry, for example, it led me on a journey to be like, what does this mean? Why, if I'm happy, am I so able to get so angry so suddenly for apparently no reason? And obviously, besides the fact it was like hurting people in my life, it was also hurting me. And as a philosopher, I really do think philosophy is a way of life. It starts with me or it's all bullshit. So I started to figure out, like, look, my emotions are part of the great story of my body. And here's a great thing about the body, right? Whitehead, who I'm influenced by, Whitehead basically gave a way of thinking about the body where you could plot the body as the unconscious relative to the mind as the conscious. And this is so brilliant, honestly. It's incredible, even just as an idea. But imagine your body is your unconscious. Your unconscious is not some hidden Freudian substrate of all your pervy desires about mom and dad. Your unconscious is your body as the unremembered history of your physical being in the world. So the kind of, you could say the body as the sort of history of Dasein as a process, the body as the existential locus for everything that we need to know, but we can't just know because we will it, because we want it. The body severs us from the tyranny of the mind, which thinks I can impose myself on the world and get the outcomes I want, but that I isn't really us. It's an I that destroys the body. It's an I that gets career success and then gets cancer. It's an I that sacrifices children and family for the sake of what? A penthouse with no one in it? Expensive hookers? It's like, really, it's like movies about Hollywood are like this because storytellers circle around the drain of our psyche. Right. And I, I like this. This is sort of the move. I mean, it, I don't want to reduce to what, what you're saying to the Lacanian thing, but we, the unconscious is is for you know structured like a language. No, but it's also not a a dark well. Some like for, you know, it's not like this 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 uh ter- it, It's not the Nietzschean seller of dogs, right? Like this is 
that no, this is this is it's it's on the surface of things. It's it's actually it's here with us. It's not it's not something that it, it, it might be obvious to other people, right? It's 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 not obvious to us usually because, like yeah, it's, it, you're in the middle of it, right? We're always already there, thrown into it, right? And so, part of the the goal then of philosophy is living the examined life. And you, I think this is the segue then into philosophy as psychotherapy. What do you mean when you say that you think about philosophy as a form of psychotherapy? Well, I mean by it, you could say a, a claim at least two distinct levels. The historical claim is that um, put into the context of modern history and scholarship, the most accurate way to categorize ancient philosophical movements would have been much closer to today what we would call psychotherapy, religion, and science than academic philosophy. So the first claim is that when I say philosophy is psychotherapeutic, what I'm saying is philosophy in the ancient world was psychotherapeutic, literally and explicitly. It was oriented towards the therapeutic or healing art of human life or soul, the suke. So if you just translate soul as life, and I have like a little intro course to my philosophy called the soul, the world, and the gods, and my episode on the soul is about what does the soul mean even if you don't believe in the soul? One of my missions as a philosopher is to show people that every concept is useful even if you don't believe in it, right? If an atheist is like, I don't believe in God, I'd be like, yeah, neither do a lot of believers. That's okay. We're talking about the idea and why it's so important to understand. So you may not believe in God, but lots of other people do. And apparently there's something human about that. So the soul is the same, I think. So from the historical fact, which is just a kind of teaser claim, but it's not original to me. I think I bring it out in, I hope, an original way. But Carl Jung, for example who, unlike Freud, really knew the history of philosophy incredibly well, particularly ancient philosophy. Jung explicitly said in his work, he knew his work was what ancient philosophy was doing. So, so that's a major person of continuity for this claim in modern psychology. The second claim is therefore an existential claim, which is my practice and interpretation of philosophy is, to put it very cuttingly, if philosophy doesn't heal your body, it will corrupt your mind. And by corrupting your mind, it'll eventually harm your body. So I don't think we have a choice about what philosophy is. Even academic philosophy, think about it for so many young people, I was one of them. Academic philosophy for a professor, a lot of academic philosophers are wonderful people who want to teach this stuff because they care. And of course, it's not bad that they get paid. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but often it's a person's introduction to just a way of thinking about their existence that is completely liberating and transformative. But then if they try to pursue the academic path, you know, you lose touch with that. So I think philosophy is existential and the existentiality of philosophy means it concerns our life. And our life is not a static object. It is a process that we are both ecstatically outside of and somehow mysteriously inside of. It's a process in which we don't know where the center is, but it's not our ego or consciousness, but our ego and consciousness proves to us we're living life, right? We're alive even when we're asleep. We're alive even when we're acting badly and unconsciously. So life is some very strange kind of above and below, inside and out. That's like the soul. So if you say, do you have a view of the soul? Yes, I would say the soul is the extended body, the body extended through space and time. I don't believe we have individual souls as just in our bodies. I think our body is a projection into space and time backwards and around us of all of the sort of life history we collect. And right. the fact that we can collect that history means we collect damage and we collect patterns of 
accumulating and accommodating that damage. When the damage is deeply somatic, it'll register quickly. Like if you cut the skin, you'll bleed. But if the damage is internal, like emotional, it does damage us. Um, so I, I practice philosophy in a way in which body work, and I do martial arts as a healing practice. I've done it for 20 years. It's an essential part of my philosophy. Because to me, once you do real philosophical work with a person, they will find their own life implicated. And if they find their own life implicated, they'll realize, boy, there's things about myself I wish were different, or I wish I could change, or I wish I felt differently about. And if you try to address those things, you're, you're essentially trying to heal yourself, or you're trying to help another person heal. So I think basically as philosophers, we need the whole toolkit of what our culture offers us. But philosophy names the place where you bring it all together in order to love your own life. And so care of the soul is to me why philosophy is psychotherapy. Socrates defines philosophy as care of the soul. He says, we're the shepherd of your own soul. And you can say, again, I don't believe in the soul. Forget the word. Your life is your responsibility. You're the shepherd of your life. And to care for your life means you're in the you're in the soul care business. <laughs> you're in the therapy business. So that's kind of, for me, it's kind of cheekily is to tell every person whether you want to go to therapy, you need to be your own therapist, whatever else you do with your life. You have to become a person who takes, I'm worth investing in my own healing. Like my healing is worth my material resources. My healing is worth new relationships. My healing is worth challenging myself. Like my healing is worth that. Because I think we're taught that our life is invaluable, especially in our culture and economy. We're taught that everything is more important than our well-being. Our, our right. relationships are more important. Our jobs are more important. Our material status and dignity, the economy is more important. How, what, what other madness could you define than that, right? Eric Fromm says that's the pathology of normalcy. Fromm wrote a brilliant book showing how the psychological adoption of normalcy as a psychometric was a disaster. And he argued that psychotherapeutically, people who are comfortable in being normal are much more likely to be psychologically pathological than the people who are sensitive and they find adaption to a totally dysfunctional, oppressive slave normalcy to be difficult. So the problem people in a society like ours are generally just really sensitive people who, for whatever reason, don't evolve the coping mechanisms that make normalcy seem bearable. Whoa, that's a lot. And I need to think about it for a couple of days. And then we need to have another conversation, uh, maybe for a few weeks. Uh, it'll probably take a few weeks just to recover from this stream, let's be honest. But I guess it raises a lot of questions for me. I know that you have your critique of Fromm and Reich. Um, and at the same time, there is also the way that the student movement that they were writing for, that they were assuming that they were kind of trying to feed the fires of, uh, has now evolved into not people who are anti-normalcy because normalcy has excluded them and now they're going to go do their own thing. Um, you know, so it's not just fringe subculture, but specifically social change movements and Kill All Normies talks about this. Angela Nagel develops this idea. Fringe, transgression for transgression's own sake, being fringe for fringe's own sake. Like it becomes a consumer category. It becomes its own thing. Politics gets understood as this. And then the, the weird thing about normalcy, tying that into what you're saying, I guess this is just what I'm thinking about, is like how trying to enforce normalcy from the fringe 
or or try you know trying to represent the fringe or whatever has become like this so now we perform being hypersensitive because normalcy has been insensitive so now we perform being more insensitive uh, more hypersensitive so as to impose a new normalcy that is very sensitive but this is this is one that seeks to establish a new status quo usually by means of coercive measures you know and so i'm just curious if how that might relate to what you're talking about because it, it seems like a complication or a contradiction well, I agree it's an evolution. I think it's a good point, right? That one of the problems with sensitization um, as a normalized practice is it's impossible. Like physiologically, you would define normalcy as a relative state of neutrality of the nervous system so that it's not uh, irritable, right? In other words, from a, from a physiologist standpoint, if your nervous system is in homeostasis and so it's equilibrium, it has equilibrium, if you're overly sensitive, it'll mean something that shouldn't disturb your physical state of um, homeostasis is going to actually disrupt your nervous system. So the interesting thing about the movement you're describing or the pattern of capital in which capital essentially is able to capital can do anything that is conceptual. That's part of my view of capital. Capital is the ultimate sort of concept. So anything that's conceptual and all all market ways of life are concepts. They have to be invented by rich kids in marketing rooms. They have to at least be able to be packaged by those kids and their bar, their bosses. And if they can't be, there's nothing for like the Ivy League, you know, person in Madison Avenue to work with. So what you're describing exactly is this elite performativity where if you have enough social capital to use Bordeaux's term, if you have a lot of social capital, but you're guilty, Historically, you performed your guilt over your social capital and your wealth by becoming like a Marxist socialist, right? right. Um, and that's why that historically is drawn overwhelmingly from the class that you wouldn't have thought it would come from based on Marxism. But of course, right, the, the revolutionary class is always the seditious child of the aristocrat. That's the typical feeder class for revolutionary sedition. Just like the Amazon, there was an article about the Amazon unionizers, right, that people would actually come in. And of course, they're these really rich kids. Good for them. They're real activists. But I mean, they didn't need to work the Amazon job. They did it in order to unionize. And that's the sort of history, which is this kind of descent from heaven, from the class heaven of the upper class, the rescuers come parachuting into the working class. So there's like, there is this unquestionably, I find ironic, cloying dimension of like activism in general, which is that activism is generally a way of the upper class performing its moral superiority to the spectacle of the onlooking oppressed class that can do nothing but applaud or be further shut down. So what you're describing, I think, is exactly the way we're seeing that mechanism today. And I don't think it has anything to do with the movements per se you might throw out, each of which and all of which have legitimate concerns and legitimate philosophical right, positions. But resentment is an agent not of normalization, but simply of shifting power. And we currently have a very strategically savvy power class that knows they can use a certain set of ideologies I don't think they personally care about just to leverage power over their parents and the boards and partners, right? So if you're a young person trying to break into power in the upper class, you've kind of had a bit of a hard time. You know, for a kid yeah. who went to Harvard, you're a little disappointed things aren't easier for you right now. And so you you grab whatever tool you have if you're really intellectual, and the best tool you have is moral delegitimization of your parents <laughs> right. right so this is typically what the right the 60s it's like so they're not interested in dropping out right 
these this new class of resentment. They're interested in normalizing so-called sensitivity simply as an apparatus to power. I mean, they like they they come out of a Lenin playbook. I mean, so that isn't like I think revolutionary infrastructural change is a science. It's non-ideological. It is the case that Lenin and others kind of pioneered really lucid descriptions of it, just like Mao did. But really, we just see here a type of like, just like coup d'etat. There's a great book on the coup d'etat by Edward Lutwak. He's the kind of father of strategy, modern military courses. Everyone in every military academy in the world will have to read Lutwak's book, Strategy. But his book, Coup d'etat, has been used by a bunch of people in coups. At least that's what he claims for his marketing. And coups aren't about morality. Coups are just about the technology of power. And so I think what you're describing is the the use of normalization through sensitivity or morality to renormalize a new power order. And I, but I think it's fundamentally not um, oriented towards activists trying to free people. I think this is just one more self iteration of an internal upper class struggle for a new group of young people to gain power over people whose ideologies they would prefer not to have. And of course, they cannibalize genuine social activist movements in the process, making it confusing for everyone who's kind of good hearted, but also wanting to think through stuff. That was, you keep surprising me in this conversation, right? I, at the beginning of this conversation, I was like, okay, so this is basically just going to be like Heidegger is a Catholic and we all need religion. And I didn't expect that you would have this sort of like basis in this Marxist in these Marxist tendencies, a sort of understanding of uh, class power today, how it has developed, right? A lot of for a lot of Marxists, it doesn't develop. And uh, I'll put up on the screen; you can't see it. I'll share the link to you in the chat. But basically, uh, I you know, there's a whole conversation that I've had here. It's been a lecture series uh, with Elton L. K. of the Working Class Intelligentsia. Um, where he's basically representing the leftist position, I'm basically the socialist position. I'm basically representing the more post-leftist position, and the the goal was to create a dialogue uh, uh, to show people through our lecture series and the exegetical readings I was doing of essential excerpts that the idea of a professional managerial class is a fundamental uh, uh, class category development that is being pioneered by people who are. I mean, Mao is in a sense developing it as a critique of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, James Burnham is developing it as a critique of of Trotskyism and Stalinism. Um, Barbara Ehrenreich is developing it as a critique of the New Left and the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. But she's still a socialist. Uh, Thomas Frank develops it as a critique of the Democratic Party, uh, and you just go down the list of all of these different thinkers uh, who have uh, contributed to it. And the point is, is that they're all from different tendencies. They're all trying to talk about what you're talking about right now, whether we like the term or not, whether it's a real class or not, whether these are less important than the phenomenon and the dynamic with its mechanisms that we want to understand. So like people get caught up on the, sem the, the, the semantics of, of a, a dictionary word as opposed to what is the phenomenon with its dynamics and mechanisms. And so um, I think you basically just you get an honorary uh, certificate. I don't, I don't give such things, but we give street cred and you get some street cred here for, for basically having done a lot of research that I don't think people from your uh, milieu typically do. I don't care if you're, you have this rich kid background or if you have like, it doesn't matter. I think you, do you teach at Yale right now? 
I know I have taught there. I don't teach there currently. I graduated. I taught there when I was there, and I didn't come from that background. So it was a Yale was my education in class because I came from very. My dad was from a working class background, and I was one of those you know kind of generation to do grad school and all that. So it was Yale was a very Yale made me glad I had marks in my, as a background resource for understanding my life. <laughs> yeah, right. It's important in a way. So that's a perfect transition then into my final question because we really don't have the time for all of the questions. And so the most important question then, I think, is, the, is to expand on religion, what you mean by this term because you obviously don't think that most uh, – I'm guessing you don't think most institutions that call themselves religious today are religious in the sort of sense that you have. Um, or if they are, how are they approximating it and how are they failing? Um, is going to be something that I'm interested to hear. Uh, but more importantly, just religious religion, like how does it come about historically? Uh, and since you do have this Marxist uh, kind of background, obviously we have to touch on the idea that it's uh, it's uh, God. It's, the, it's what's the what's the classic quote? Opium of of the, of the yeah. people, right? And so. Another way of saying it is that, and obviously I like Slavoj's kind of comeback, which is that, you know, we need painkillers today because life's so hard. And so, but then that's the danger, right? We could talk about this as being copology, the ideology of coping that ultimately keeps things running smoothly from the level of capital accumulation for a handful of people, whatever, whatever. But I think that, yeah, the, 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 I get the definite sense from everything you've said so far that it's more than that. It's more than just coping. It's more than just healing in the sense of, ah, now you can keep going to work and have a good life. It's, it's something more. So what is, what is it in, in, in your own words? I mean, we heal in order to be free. Illness is illness of the body. I've suffered for almost a decade from a severe autoimmune illness, which is a big part of my life. And like, when you're trapped physically in your body, for example, by pain, you're very aware that illness in that visceral, literal, physical sense is like, it's like a destruction of your wellness. It's, when you realize life being impinged is what you mean when you're not free, you begin to have a very deep understanding about why like it's worth investing everything we can in our own lives because freedom is like why we're here, right? This is why for me, philosophy of psychotherapy is an intrinsically emancipatory outcome of a proper understanding of the human condition. The human condition is a condition in need of emancipation. The human condition is a condition in need of liberation from oppression. And so let me start with religion. And I mean, so series one of my show origins is about this category of religion. And one of the claims I make is there's two great atheistic revolutions. The first is Christianity and the second is Marxism. So if you want to kind of teaser, that's part of, this is coming out of a context where I've argued this at length. So I think Marxism is the second great iteration of Christianity, um, which is to say Marxism, and this is part of a historiographical tradition, famously Karl Lovett wrote Meaning in History. Um, Leszczak Kolakowski, of course, wrote a very brilliant, learned, critical tome about Marxism, but it's unquestionable to a scholar of the history of religion that Marxism, like German idealist philosophy in general, is a profoundly religious movement, right? Marxism is what you could just simply call a form of like, you know, transmuted messianism. So Marxism has this very Jewish Christian, completely uncommon in the pagan world, that is a very Jewish Christian apocalyptic messianism, 
where it divides all of the prior and past moments of history into their meaning in relationship to a future imminent apocalyptic world-changing event. Um, so this is the clearly apocalyptic imagination that, you know, Marx and any German would have just by being raised in the 19th century in Germany. And the messianism is, of course, you could connect it to Judaism specifically, but it's also part of just Christianity as a kind of Jewish messianic movement that eventually became dominated by Gentiles, which is a big part of the history of like spe specified class oppression in our culture it has to do with always the way particular groups evolve their historical relationships. So Christianity is an oppressor class relative to Judaism in the same way that every laboring class depends on and is oppressed by a class that exploits them. So Christianity takes Jewish texts and ideas it eventually converts them, weaponizes them against the Jewish people, literally makes the source of their own religion, Judaism, illegal. Marx is living in the 20 to 30 years after German emancipation. He's coming of age in Germany during the Jewish emancipation debates that are happening in the early um, 19th century in Germany. And so he himself is this very complicated figure, like all German Jewish intellectuals have to go through this very unique issue of navigating their, their German or Jewish identity. So the it, there's a lot of stuff written about that in terms of biography of Marx, but it's like the the messianic dimension of Marxism is to me very important. So if you look at the Frankfurt School, which was how I got into Marxism, Frankfurt School to me is Marxism without messianism. They don't believe in the class utopia. They really don't believe in the revolution. And I think sober Marxists stop believing in the end times. <laughs> um, that's like one of the first things you lose if you're a Marxist is you're like, nothing went the way Marx said it did. Um, every specific prediction ends up being weirdly wrong. And yet Marx is so clearly important. Why is that? Well, think about Judaism and Christianity. Can you understand Christianity ultimately if you like are pig-headedly ignorant about the Jewish sources? Just as a scholar, of course not. The, the, the Old Testament is a Jewish text. What are you going to do? The New Testament is a Jewish text. So Marxism, can you understand Marxism and its logic without understanding its religious background? Of course not. But if you understand the religious background, then for me, we can take Marx's idea of religion and recognize what he's doing is he's taking a concept that is oppressive. So here I agree. And like Fromm has a brilliant essay about this in his early work about, you know, Fromm kind of pioneered the 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 melding of Marxist class analysis with Freudian psychoanalysis. So he brought the individual Freudian right. psycho into conversation with um, Marx's class analysis, and that was kind of Fromm's structural great contribution to kind of psychoanalysis and social theory. And I'm very influenced by that. I, I believe that if you separate class oppression from individual suffering, you always perpetuate one of them in the name of the other, um, like inadvertently. So I do believe a lot of what people call religion, religion is an opiate that is unconscious alienation in which you have to delude yourself with fantasies. My question then is, what is religion today? Religion for a Freudian is Freud and Freudianism. Religion for an atheistic psychoanalyst from the upper class, from a very wealthy background, who looks down on all those moron Bible believers in middle America, their religion is just their psychology. That's their opium. They couldn't justify their categories before a tribunal of philosophers doing a Kantian level critique. They're just imposing categories useful for social power and their personal aesthetic pleasure onto the world as a way of legitimating their professional security into an existential validation of their identity, okay? 
So their religion is that, just like the religion of a person who manages a finance firm. Not saying they have to have one, but if they have one, it's probably finance. And I don't mean that in just this typical and annoying religion scholar way. I mean the Marxist dimension of what's their opium. I think that's that's a way of using the category today that is useful. I hate to interject, but we basically have to close this thing out. And I, I guess I want I want to bring you back on to to ask you in a in a in a space that will give us the the room to really unpack it. But basically, well, you know, be, what's the harm of believing in say psycho uh, psychoanalysis um, in comparison to the harm of believing in a vengeful God who tells people to smash the heads of babies against rocks and then that's scripture and we're supposed to treat that like that is something that was deep, deep, deep wisdom that's been preserved over the centuries. Okay, that is a big question. Um, well, first of all, that's there's a reason Freudianism comes out of the Jewish tradition because the religious tradition which would keep such abominable texts is obviously whatever their problems, they're not afraid of the darkness of the human psyche. So actually, that to me would where that conversation would need to go. I completely agree if you sort of ethically normalize that. But if you ask, why would any group of people preserve songs about this level of vengeance? Then you would say, well, this must have something to do with like how damaged and hurt these people are. Of course, that's a psalm after the Babylonian exile in which that happened to their babies, in which mm. mothers watched their babies' heads be smashed by foreign soldiers as their daughters were being raped. Is that irrelevant to our culture? Do we have cultures in which people are currently dealing with the trauma of rape and genocide? Yes, we do. Have we asked those people what you might feel like doing to the innocent members if you could have a revenge fantasy? So what you're really talking about, which is fair, but you're actually talking about how religion documents some of our deepest and darkest revenge fantasies, for example, which is a very interesting... Now, why would you call it scripture? There's so much there, but I, unfortunately, I don't think I can do any justice to it other than to just accept the validity of the ethical critique you're making, but then also to note at a deeper documentary level, well, how interesting, is it really an accident that some of the greatest psychologists have come out of this same religious tradition, but as atheists? As atheists. Man, all right. Well, seriously, that you you just said you can't do it justice, and let, the fact is, it's 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 an injustice that we only have this much time. But I have another guest coming on in a moment. You've got a meeting. You've got to run to. I just have to say that this was an absolute pleasure. What we did was we opened like fifty cans of worms in, that are each their own portal into their own universes, and so. But they all seem to collide, and, and you've integrated them in your own life, and that that's that's the most imp impressive part for me. And so, um, Nance just shared your channel in the chat. Everybody, make sure to subscribe. The chat was blowing up with supportive comments. Um, my fiance in the chat actually was just like. This is so, so many really deep insights here. This is really great. And so uh, thank you so much for being here and for visiting us and getting to meet you for real. Uh, it, it just feels like, you know, meeting, I, I, I imagine like normal people, how they want to meet like a Ryan Gosling or some shit. Like this is how I feel meeting you. So thank you. Well, Dave, you, this is the kindest praise you could give. I think what you're doing is incredible. I'm so honored to be part of it, and I really look forward to coming back. Thanks so much for your brilliance and conversational rigor and love. Awesome. Yeah, take care. Have a good rest of your day.
And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important yet neglected for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being and Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at Tier 3, you also get access to the Recovery Group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? One of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. 
Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in Time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video, or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second. The prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, people tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for listening or watching to this point and uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.